0: Hey there, I'm Ange McCormack. Over summer, we're featuring our favourite episodes of Read This, Schwartz Media's weekly podcast about the books we love and the stories behind them. Today, host Michael Williams speaks with Melissa Lukashenko, the acclaimed Indigenous Australian author and Miles Franklin winner, about her new book, Eden Glassie. If you love Read This as much as we do, you can subscribe or follow Read This on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Michael with Melissa Lukashenko.
1: It had to be a funny book, you know. I can't, I couldn't write about colonial atrocity and colonial hardship without it being a funny book. Melissa
0: Lukashenko writes about big ideas and brutal experiences, but she does so with grace, with generosity, and maybe above all else, a rich sense of humour. It's one of the things that made her novel too much lip such a well-received winner of the Miles Franklin Award back in 2019. It's why, across eight novels for adults and young adults, she's built such a following and a reputation. Tough, smart, and very funny. Her essays, for which she's won a Walkley Award, reveal her passions and her concerns. Intergenerational poverty, structural violence and racism, the injustices of our legal and prison systems. The anger and grief is there in her words and it's unmistakable. But Melissa is also a smart ass of the first order. I love her books for how she channels big concerns into lively plots, memorable characters, and a voice that's entirely her own. Her latest novel is called Eden Glassy. It takes its name from the penal colony turned settlement that became Brisbane. Eden Glassy is a hybrid of Edinburgh and Glasgow, and as Melissa puts it, the name is a kind of title that gives a nod to The Paths Not Taken. It's a story set across two timelines. It follows the familial links between activist Winona and her grandmother Eddie in the present day and life in the colonies in the 1850s and a chance meeting of young saltwater man Melunyan and Nita, servant to real-life colonial family the Petries. A history and a story shadowed by violence, but ultimately, at its heart, it's a love story. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, the show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Melissa Lukashenko, are you a romantic? Oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> What's life without romance?
0: This book, but also in your other books, in Too Much Lip, that romantic heart beats pretty strongly as a kind of narrative driver. And I'm interested in how you balance love stories with the other kind of stories you want to tell.
1: Well, the thing about love stories for an Aboriginal writer is that it's a revolutionary act to write us, to imagine us, or to be a black fella who's fully rounded and um, out there having a life that contains joy and beauty and connection instead of all the uh, negative tropes that, you know, we're supposed to inhabit. I'm really glad
0: you mentioned joy there because it does seem to me to be such a crucial thing in your books. I don't know anyone else who can write about hard things, racism, grief, trauma, dispossession, with more joy, which seems like an unlikely proposition, but it seems really crucial to understanding your work.
1: Yeah, well, you know, if you knock around with poor people, blackfellas, people in the underclass and um, in the prison class, you know, you'd be laughing from dawn till dusk. <laughs> the ability to, to spin a yarn and to make people laugh is, is really highly prized, and rightly so, you know, because sometimes the power to laugh at authority is the only power people have. Too Much Lip,
0: one of the first triggers for that was a story about your own grandmother shooting a guy and that <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of place where family history coincides with a broader history, you knew that's where the story was. Was there a similar moment for Eden Glassy?
1: Yeah, there were two uh, historical incidents that were precipitating. The hanging of Dundalee on the 5th of January 1855 was... Uh, an absolutely pivotal moment in the frontier wars in what was then New South Wales and is still Moreton Bay. And that image of the hangman botching the hanging in front of an assembled crowd of possibly one or two thousand people, a lot of them angry blackfellas, that was just begging to be fictionalised. But the other incident, which struck me even stronger was when I found a story of early Queen Street in central Brisbane, for your listeners that don't know Brisbane. Back then it would have been a dirt track through the centre of this tiny colonial outpost that was Brisbane, a place of about maybe 800 or 1,000 white people and approximately the same number of Aboriginal people. And an Aboriginal man was kneeling in the centre of Queen Street and reciting the Lord's Prayer so that he would be given a half a cup of rum. And I just thought to myself, if that isn't colonisation in one picture, I don't know what is. And I thought that's got to be in a novel and that's going to be in a novel that I will write. Eden Glassy,
0: one of the remarkable things in it, and a, a departure for you, or a new thing for you, is that about half the book is set historically in the kind of 1850s. And that's a literary space that often isn't earthy or funny or populated by real human beings. How hard was it to both honour the history and not then turn it into this kind of sermon?
1: Um, Oh, look, there was a lot of hard work in the book. But see, I rang up Tony Birch and I said... um, Birchie, how do you write a historical novel? Because, of course, Tony was a historian before he came a, a leading literary novelist. And he said, you don't. And I said, eh? And he said, you just write a novel. And that was the best advice that I could possibly have got, because I knew I was in danger of, like, wandering into this turgid space with these, like, stiff sentences and just not readable at all. Um, and as soon as Tony said that, a light went on in my brain, and I just went, oh, yeah, right, so you know, imagine the vernacular due to the research. You know, I read things like The Fortunes of Richard Mayonee and For the Term of His Natural Life and a whole heap of old colonial era novels and um, got the language right for the non-Aboriginal characters. I just sort of did what I usually do with a novel is, you know, try and make people come to life on the page and be in conflict, be in love and have adventures. I think about the kind of contrast between
0: your present day protagonist, Winona, and the woman at the heart of the historical story, Nita, and Mm. what kind of rebellion or insubordination or a challenge to kind of structural power looks like in those two different time periods. Mm. Was it hard toggling between those voices, finding the right register to make acts of protest make sense for their historical period?
1: The contemporary voices were very easy. I've got a knack for hearing dialogue and writing dialogue. It just comes very easily to me, always has. It was as much about knowledge as voice in the historic era. So, for example, Nita um, is a servant of the pioneering White family, the Petrie family in what's um, early Brisbane. And so her instances of rebellion are things like challenging her mistress, Mrs Petrie, when Mrs Petrie is suggesting that her baby that's coming might go and be looked after by someone else. And Nita's horrified at the idea because she knows how vulnerable her children are to being taken. And so when she talks back to that idea and threatens to leave her employer, you know, that's that's massively rebellious in the context of 1855, even if it doesn't sound like it on the page as much as Winona saying, you know, go and burn Parliament House down, bro. Part of what I love
0: about the two threads of this
1: book and
0: moving between the historical and the present day is the closeness of the two and the ways in which you compellingly, even leaving aside the more magical elements of it. You know, five generations apart's not that much. It's your grandparents' grandparent. And I think often history or the historical mode leaves things at arm's length or pushes them far away, whereas you're doing exactly the opposite.
1: Well, it's good to hear you say that, Michael, because, of course, being down south where you are, it is further away than it is in Queensland, Northern Territory, top of WA. But um, my mother was raised by her grandmother, who was a slave in colonial Queensland. And in the research for the book, I was talking to a Munanjali man that I know, and uh, he told me... Without, you know, assigning any great significance to it, but he named a family member, I'm not sure if it was his grandfather or the next generation up, but someone who had told him that when the white people came, the Mananjali people saw their veins through their white skin and that was amazing to them because they'd never seen veins before, you know, because the skin was too dark. And they said, oh, they look like those white-skinned frogs. <laughs> And so, you know, these personal anecdotes and reminiscences are very much alive in the community today. So you're absolutely right. You don't even have to engage in collapsed time to to know that it's not very far away at all. The
0: personification of that idea in the book is Granny Eddie, who's a fantastic character. Um, Every page she's on comes alive. She's causing mischief. (laughs) She's harnessing stories just to get her own way. But she's also kind of deeply sincere and passionate about it. Were there particular Granny Eddies you have a debt to in this book?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday and uh, there's a lot of my mum in Granny Eddie, but my mum uh, kept pretty quiet about her Aboriginality and, and Granny Eddie isn't like that. So there's that difference. But, yeah, the, the language that Granny Eddie uses is quite similar to the language that my mum used. They're the same vintage. But also there's um, there's people like the late Artie Barb Cummings in Darwin uh, who was just a rat bag of the first order and... Yeah, there's many, many Granny Eddies out there. But I called it Eddie because the, the meaning of the word Eddie in a river, it's, a, it's where things reverse. And I thought that for a contrarian like Granny Eddie, that's gonna, that's what she needs to be called. I think you can run an argument, Melissa,
0: that you are our poet laureate of ratbags, that there's, <laughs> there's no one in our literary firmament who nails ratbags better than you do.
1: Oh, that's great. I'll have a business card made up post-haste. <laughs>
0: Coming up after the break, Melissa Lukashenko discusses the necessity of being a rat bag against a backdrop of colonial power and how finding a voice of resistance underscores her writing. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy, and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment
1: you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more.
0: For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel.
1: I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, (laughs) please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on Read This. (laughs) If If that's what you're using writing for.
0: I'm Michael Williams. And on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Melissa Lukashenko's latest novel, Eden Glassy, opens with the indefatigable Granny Eddie taking a fall and winding up in a hospital bed, trying to make sense of the stories and memories that circle around her. It's funny, but it also has this underlying sense of grief for the ways in which history and decades of life in colonial Australia have shaped and inhibited those stories. As Granny Eddie works out what she wants to share, there's this feeling that this kind of storytelling is more than just entertainment. It's a tension Melissa knows all too well.
1: Yeah, Mum did what a lot of colonised people have had to do, you know, throughout history, and that is to hide her true self. And she buried her Aboriginal self very, very deeply. Um, I glimpsed it from time to time. And the values of being Aboriginal were always present in our family. Uh, these cultural influences and moral stances that I only realised in retrospect were coming down through my great-grandmother who raised my mum and my grandmother and my aunt and uncles north of Brisbane. There's a great
0: line uh, just towards the very end of the book when Mm. uh, Opal is having a go at Dartmouth, who's another great character <laughs> in the book. Incredible. But what what she says is that yarn's not yours to tell, mate. Mm, mm. Um, to anyone, let alone Granny Eddie of all people, the nerve. Your work is so suffused with kind of authenticity of voice and care and care for like passing on these stories and different things. Mm. And I, I wonder about the trauma of having that fractured for your mum that she couldn't do it in the same way.
1: Yeah, I think because she grew up with her grandmother and her extended family in what was effectively a blacks' camp outside Gympie, mum never lacked a sense of belonging, but she, as far as I know, didn't know um, cultural stories because her grandmother was removed and herself didn't know exactly where she was from. The family law says that she was from the Tweed River in Bunjilong country. And one of the only snippets of information that we've got is that a fishing or oystering boat came to Tin Can Bay where she lived in later life, and those people knew her family. One of the things that I was thinking about in this book, and it comes back a bit to
0: um, characters like Nita and Winona, but it's also the case in your earlier books, you're drawn to these kind of rebellious, confrontational characters And I want to know how autobiographical that is. You know, you've established you're a romantic, you're a lover, but (laughs) you're also a fighter, yeah? (laughs) Uh, If you say so, Michael. (laughs) Well, well, you know, I I wouldn't want to put words in your mouth. but uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, I was um, quite stroppy in my 20s. I grew up very meek. My mum was terrified of authority, white authority. Uh, So I was told as a kid, you don't put your elbow out the car window, the police will come. Uh, and I grew up absolutely shit scared of police, anyone in authority, and I think that's partly about Aboriginal deference to age but very much about keeping quiet, keeping under the radar so that you don't attract the wrong sort of attention and get dragged off to the bloody um, orphanage or foster home, which is what happened to my great-grandmother and almost happened to my grandmother, the protector But, yeah, in my 20s I got a little bit mouthy and uh, probably in my 30s got mouthier still. If there's a spectrum between Winona, the activist, and Granny Eddie, the elder full of pethidine in hospital, it probably sits smack bang in the middle, Michael.
0: That's a very healthy place to be. (laughs) I mean, I know you're a pacifist. like, I know that's an important part of your political ideology, but I also know that you channeled a whole lot of your kind of adolescent energy into karate. So you're a pacifist Mm. who understands that there are impulses, feelings, Angers that need direction or need channelling in useful ways.
1: Yeah, especially for young people. And, and of course, we're known as 20-something, maybe 27 or 28, and uh, is just incandescent with rage. <laughs> and it's so much fun to write characters like that, you know, when you, you take the brakes off and you take the, the bridle off and you just let the character go. Um, the thing is I probably am a pacifist, although it's not a word I've attached to myself you've got to be mindful of what you're starting when you are part of an Aboriginal community. You know, we don't have the luxury of going and giving cheek to coppers or running amok because we're not protected by white privilege. I'm fair-skinned, so if I'm on my own and it's not going to come back on any other Aboriginal people, then maybe I do have that privilege. But as a general rule, you've got to be thinking, you know, a week, a month, a year down the track and say who is going to be affected by what I do here, you know, are people going to die? And so that's the source of my pacifism or my restraint.
0: I'm interested in feminism in your work and in particular in Eden Glassy. I read a quote from you where you talked about the need for writing to require internal excavation and you quote the Cornell West thing about struggling against the white supremacist inside Um, Mm. And it seems to me that for several of your characters in this book and other books, there's a bit of struggling against internalised misogyny as well and internalised pressures of patriarchy. How important is that in your work?
1: Yeah, I was keenly aware of having to portray gender relations quite differently in the historic era. You know, there's not much queer content in the book compared to some of my other books, there is one queer relationship but you have to pay close attention to pick up on it. The place of women in classical Guri culture is um it's illuminated by the matriarch and the the deference that is shown in the in the last page to the matriarch as the personality who is actually in charge of um the the central journey of the book without wanting to make any spoilers or give too much away winona has the literally the voice he is the voice of misogyny and uh, well, it's mostly misogyny it's not really about race and uh, it's it's the um elder psychologist who's the only person that is able to give her a, a, a path out of that yeah yeah
0: i just want to ask again about whether in writing this, you felt a different set of responsibilities. Like I remember speaking to you about Too Much Lip and you talked about the awareness of the responsibility in depicting flawed mm. Indigenous characters and how that would be received in contemporary Australia and what your mm. responsibilities were to get that right. And I'm yep. I'm curious about whether the historical context gave it another level of that again, where you felt like you owed something... Uh, to a potential reader.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in more than one way. Yeah, I started reading historical material probably 30 or 40 years ago, but the the actual start of research into this book was 2019. And uh, it probably took me a good six to 12 months before I could relax and stop um, obsessing about what um, conservatives and... Uh, particularly right-wing historians, were going to say about the book. Um, And one of the ways I let go of that was to talk to um, Professor Ray Evans here in Brisbane, who's um, been a very brave scholar of race relations in Queensland for decades. He's retired now. And uh, I was talking to Ray about having to get things right and, and, you know, not bugger the history up. And then I said to him, well, it is fiction, of course. And he just looked at me and he said, Melissa, it all is it's all fiction. And that just, a great load lifted off my shoulders when he said that. And then on the other side, I was talking to um, Auntie Pat O'Connor, who's the senior uh, Yugamber, Kombamere woman who endorsed the project from the start. And uh, she was cautioning me to get it right, you know, get the details right, get the stories right. And I said, yes, I'm trying my hardest. And uh, I said, "It it is a novel, though. It's not a history book. And she said, yes, but people will treat it as though it's history. People will take it as gospel. And that pulled me up and thought, yeah, well, that's that's true. Uh, once a story's out in the world, it does get repeated and believed, as we all know from the example of old mate Donald Trump. I like
0: that you've got these... Um... Just like your characters, you're working with these different voices in your head at all times. You know, this one's saying, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. Oh, yeah. And this one's saying, yeah. no, you need to worry more.
1: Yeah, the others are faster, right? <laughs> Some of them are pretty cranky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how do you carve your way through the middle of all those cranky voices? Because I imagine no matter how contradictory they are, in many cases they're people you respect deeply. How do you... Work out the authentic Melissa Lukashenko voice in the middle
1: <laughs> very carefully oh no, that's that's part of the work of the novel you know i I really can't overstate the amount of bloody, sheer hard work that went into this book. I finished the what was almost the final draft about six months ago, and I closed my laptop and I thought, I really don't know how I did that if I'd known how much effort and how difficult it was going to be. I probably wouldn't have tried. You know, Barbara Kingsolver says, put your head down and hoe till the end of the row. And I just kept hoeing and hoeing and hoeing and hoeing and and not looking at the finish line. And uh, here we are.
0: Do you like this stage of the process? When the book's done, it's out of your hands. Readers are just coming to it for the first time. Or is it nerve wracking? Is it not enough control?
1: Um, I'm enjoying it this time. I haven't in the past, but I don't think I've finished a book and been as happy with it as I have with Eden Glassy. I think I I set myself a high bar. I wanted to write a better book than Too Much Lip, and I wanted to achieve different things than I achieved in Too Much Lip. And, you know, I'll have to look back on the book in a year or two to have any kind of real um, distance. But, at the moment, I think I'm happy with it. And, yeah, I am looking forward to doing the festivals and seeing what people reckon.
0: That was Melissa Lukashenko, and I reckon she's knocked it out of the park. Eden Glassie might be her best book yet. It's available in all good bookstores now.
1: Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Mementa. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com.
0: Before we go, I wanted to let you know what I've been reading this week. First up is the new one from Mick Heron. I'm a complete sucker for his books. His Slow Horses series, which was adapted for Apple TV, is like John le Carre meets the thick of it. Spy shenanigans with an overlay of depressing office life. They're very funny. His latest is called The Secret Hours, and it's terrific. It divides its time between Berlin of the 90s and present-day England. They're billing it as a standalone, but honestly, it's more of a prequel. The payoffs and links to the series are delicious, and familiar characters are lurking in every shadow. It's so much fun. And one of the best local debuts of recent years was Laura Jean McKay's The Animals in That Country. Her follow-up's called Gunflower. It's a book of short stories, and based on the first four, it confirms that she's not a one-hit wonder. Weird, suffused with anxiety and with a preponderance of animal cameos, it's terrific. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books at apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it and rate and review us. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fecho and special thanks this week to Tiffany Dimac. Thanks for listening. See you next week.